0: Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sebarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Van Lehman,
1: a fellow at Manhattan's Tribune Editor at City Journal. Charles, how are you in today? Well, just for a change, I'm sick. It turns out that daycare is just like a continuous cesspool of every germ available. And my a friend of mine said that it's a sign that I'm a good dad, that I get every disease that my child brings home. No, I'm I'm like at the point, this is like the fourth time that he's been sick. I'm at the point where I'm just like, I would like, I would like Vladimir Putin to end it. I would I like, like he could just he <laughs> could bomb Rockville, Maryland, and I will be put out of my misery, and it'll be great. That is, that is where I'm at in terms assuming, of. Assuming, assuming he bombs Rockville.
0: <laughs> but if he bombs, but if he bombs, if he bombs DC, you won't die in the
1: initial blast. You'll die slowly of radiation poisoning, right? I'm NIH. There's, uh, there's some stuff out. There's some stuff. new enough trust that I could be in the. I could be in the blast radius. Okay. Enough, okay. enough nuke. Big enough nuke. They fire it at us. No, the real reason. I like, like I've, I've, I've been purchasing. I've been doing like lazy nuclear prepping. Like I own a lot of iodine tablets now. But you know, if there's a nuclear strike, I don't know what I'm gonna do. But I feel better about it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, if there's a nuclear strike and you have the iodine,
0: you can decide to prolong your life assuming you don't die in the initial blast you can decide to prolong your life long enough to see society collapse if you want and then just like stop taking the iodine when you decide you know what no let's let's just die this is not worth it
1: that's what i'm looking forward to yeah this seems like a relevant segue to our topic this week Aaron, do you want to tell our listeners what we're talking about on that cherry note Yeah. So we're going to talk
0: about nukes today, a topic that has renewed relevancy over the past year. President Biden recently said that we're closer to nuclear war now than at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Vladimir Putin has repeatedly threatened to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. These are the weapons that are lower yield. So they're not, you know, the kind of things that can destroy a whole city, but they can destroy a tank battalion or something like that. He has a lot more of these smaller tactical nuclear weapons than we do, which a lot of experts think poses a problem, because it might make it hard for us to credibly say that we're going to respond in kind to a tactical nuke. So today, we're going to talk really about the game theory behind nuclear weapons. How likely is a nuclear war? How can we avert one? Where, perhaps, has U.S. nuclear policy gone wrong? All sorts of cheerful stuff. And we'll introduce our guest in a second. But first. Charles, what's
1: what's your take on these potentially world-destroying uh, uh, instruments of war? I think of the two of us, I'm sort of more sanguine about nuclear apocalypse than you are, and so I'm, I'm curious to hear our guests sort of talk through sort of the strategic logic of nuclear warfare. Simply because I think there are very few actors who are genuinely bananas enough to think that setting off a global thermonuclear war is a good idea, and so therefore, I am I am. I guess it is it is such a costly thing to everyone involved that I'm not particularly worried about it happening. And so I'm generally pretty sympathetic to the value of nuclear deterrence as a way to as a way to mitigate conventional threats. You know, I think I think there's clearly clearly the use of nuclear weapons has been beneficial for Russia or of the threat of nuclear weapons is beneficial for Russia, but it seems like the same logic applies to us. On the other hand, it's not a topic I know we've been about. So I'm curious to hear our guest thoughts. Where are you I think you're uh, you're less enthused enthused about nuclear weapons than I am. Well, yeah, I mean I mean Charles that, you know, just to respond
0: to you. It's like, well, it, it just seems like so. St- who, who could possibly do this and be like, oh, well, yeah? I mean, imagine if someone said, you know, we're going to take a really dangerous virus and then grow it in a lab and then deliberately make it more dangerous. And we're going to do this in a lab funded by that that's in a country that's hostile to us. You know, I would think, well, that's insane. No one would ever agree to fund research like that, right? Well, You know, I mean, I mean, I just I I think like the, the, the tail, this is this is why they worry me. The tail, it's like it only takes, you know, yeah, hopefully everyone's rational and nothing bad happens. But if the right people are irrational, the world ends. So, yeah, I mean, my basic view is that nuclear conflict is so scary that in principle, one should probably be a single issue voter on nuclear war i mean no one realistically is going to be because you just can't you know it's hard to assess whether say like this president or that president will you know minimize the odds but in theory i think you can actually make a pretty good tail risk argument that yep it's so bad that this should just overwhelm all other considerations in politics so that's
1: so, that's so, kind so, of my Siberian's transition to x risk aficionado which will hasten his moving to San Francisco during a rationalist commune continues a pace okay
0: but this um, is but this is they're right about this yeah. I mean they, they're fundamentally and rogue basilisks could kill us all
1: so Siberian and I want we'll to talk sort of uh, total nuclear annihilation a great guy to do that with is our guest Matthew Kranig is a professor of the Department of Government and the Ebony Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University He is the author of seven books, including The Logic of American Nuclear Strategy, Why Strategic Superiority Matters, and he served in a number of executive positions related to nuclear policy. Matt, welcome to Institutionalized.
2: Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we like to start with the opening provocative question,
0: and there's a pretty obvious one we'll just ask you, or really two. What are the odds that we all die in a thermonuclear war? Like at the moment, what would you say the current odds are? of this happening within the next few years. And then relatedly, what will the odds be if Putin does indeed launch a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine?
2: Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and if I could, let me first pick up on something you were saying in the opening, which is that nuclear war is bad for everybody. Therefore, you know, we, we don't want to do that. The, the dilemma is nobody wants to fight a nuclear war. On the other hand, you don't want to signal that to your adversaries. You know, the, the best way to avoid nuclear war with Putin would be to say, Putin, do do whatever you want, you know, take Europe, we're, we're sorry, we'll get out of your way. But that's not in our interest. So we do need to be able to credibly threaten that we would use nuclear weapons if things get bad enough. And, and Putin's doing the same thing to us. So the dilemma is, you, you know, you want to avoid going to the brink, but you also have to credibly be willing to go to the brink over important national security issues. So what is the chance we all die in a thermonuclear war? Very low, but not zero. And the chance that Putin uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine in the coming weeks, I think, is not likely, but but also not zero. I, I've been saying, I think, about 20% chance that he'll use nuclear weapons. And we can talk about the reasons why I think that.
0: Well, yeah. yeah. Actually, could you just give a brief overview of of why you think it's unlikely,
1: but not yeah, at all impossible and, and we, we we should flag for listeners we're recording this at the end of october so you know if if a nuclear weapon is dropped in between now and then then this will be an interesting picture of the past but but go ahead man
2: well well so on one hand using nuclear weapons is attractive to putin this is their strategy we, we don't have to invent you know some crazy theory as to why he would do this uh, this is what, what their doctrine says that they're going to use tactical nuclear weapons to offset the conventional advantages of their rivals and that rather than lose conventional war on their border, they'll use nuclear weapons. Now, when the doctrine was designed, it was really aimed more at NATO, but, uh, you know, now in the war in Ukraine, they're in this exact situation. They're losing the conventional war. And so rather than lose the war, they'll, they're going to rely on nuclear weapons. And in fact, they're already doing it. They're relying on the threat of nuclear weapons. You know that they've been making since February to try to get Ukraine to back off, to try to get the West to back off. As the next step, they could use one or, or two nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. maybe a test, maybe a demonstration shot, uh, again, to try to get Ukraine and the West to back off. But then as a final step, rather than you know, ha- have his conventional military overrun, he could use them to, to win the war, use five, 10, uh, 100 non-strategic nuclear weapons to destroy Ukraine's military forces and stave off a devastating defeat so so on one hand this is attractive uh, on the other hand there are reasons why he doesn't want to do this and why you know he, he's been making the threats since february but hasn't done it yet
1: it does sort of it does sort of seem like just to, to stick with the russia situation for a second that that the nuclear arsenal is sort of uniquely important to russia's strategic position right like it's it's, it's, by many other metrics, not really in a position to compete with NATO powers, economic development, scale of force, but they do have a lot more nuclear weapons than anybody else because they're the AACs, the USSR. Do you think that that fact, A, is accurate, that claim is accurate, and so B, how do you think that affects their, their posture with regards to nuclear weapons?
2: Yeah, nuclear weapons are important to Russia for a couple of reasons. One is it's the the only place where they still have a seat at the high table as a superpower. You know, every other indicator of power has its greatly declined since the end of the Cold War. But in terms of nuclear weapons, they're, they're number one. They have more than the United States now, because even though we have this new START arms control agreement, that only limits certain types of nuclear weapons. And Russia's building a lot of other nuclear weapons, not controlled. But then the second reason is that Russia realizes it's conventionally weak relative to NATO. And so conventionally weak nuclear powers that have always relied on nuclear weapons to offset the conventional advantages of their rivals. So during the Cold War, the shoe was on the other foot. It was the United States relying on battlefield nuclear weapons in Europe to deter Russia's Red Army. Pakistan used those tactical nuclear weapons to deter India's conventionally superior military North Korea relies on nuclear weapons to offset the U S and South Korean conventional advantage. Uh, and so it, it is understandable why Russia does what it does, but it is also, also dangerous for us.
0: Right. So, so, so let's get into why it's dangerous. The theory that everyone I think is familiar with is mutually assured destruction. The idea being, well, if one guy launches a nuke, then the other guy will launch a nuke and then more nukes will be launched and then we'll all die. And yeah, I think Charles was kind of alluding to this at the start that well, you know, who would who would do that? Everyone would die, you know. So just no one will ever launch a nuke. Could you explain a bit how tactical nuclear weapons have and and potentially other developments have changed that calculus, and why MAD, you know, isn't really actually a guarantee against nukes ever being used?
2: Yeah, the, that's right. So I think the many people think mutually assured destruction is kind of the last word on on nuclear strategy. I actually think that's where nuclear strategy begins, uh, because you do have this dilemma that I talked about on on one hand at the beginning, that just because the United States and Russia both have nuclear weapons doesn't mean that international politics ends. We still have serious conflicts of interest. Uh, We are willing, you know, to, to some of them are important enough, we're willing to fight over and so how do you credibly threaten to Putin that we might be willing to use nuclear weapons? How can he credibly threaten that to us? So much of nuclear strategy since the 1960s has been finding ways around mutually assured destruction. And so one of the ways around it is limited nuclear war and that's Russia's strategy. So rather than, you know, cause what we're talking about here is not that Russia is going to launch 1500 nukes on the United States immediately, but that they use one, you know, five Nuclear weapons on the battlefield in Ukraine. Okay, so let's say they do that tomorrow, and you're President Biden. You know, what do you do? Do you say, "Oh, uh, I learned about mutually assured destruction in uh, college, so now we're going to launch 2,000 nuclear weapons at at Russia"? Uh, no, obviously not. That makes you know n- no no sense. And so it does put the United States in what's been called a suicide or surrender you know dilemma. Do we just back down and let Putin have his way? Do we respond that maybe does lead to major escalation? And so for that reason, limited nuclear war is, you know, can be an effective strategy. And so that's the, the problem we're dealing with no. now.
1: Well, are, there, are there, just very briefly, are there, are there other strategies that are, you talked about nuclear strategies turning around mad. Are there other ways that powers have thought about dealing with this problem?
2: Yeah, the other way is brinkmanship. And, you know, Thomas Schelling was a, a brilliant Harvard economist who actually won the Nobel a prize in economics for game theoretic models of nuclear deterrence and so he came up with this concept of brinkmanship and and so i can you know use an example of my kids to illustrate it so i have a couple of young kids you know imagine they're they're out on a boat on a sunday afternoon my you know they're having ice cream cones My, my older daughter finishes her ice cream cone first and says hey henry give me your ice cream cone and he says no you you already ate yours this is mine and she says, Henry, give me the ice cream cone or I'm going to tip this boat over and we're going to fall in the lake. We can't swim. We're, the water is cold. Mom and dad are going to be mad. And he said, yeah, but the same is true for you. You'll get wet. You can't swim. Mom and dad will be mad. But you're not going to do that. And she says, she starts rocking the boat. Henry, give me the ice cream cone or I'm going to tip this over. Hey, what, what are you doing? Cut that out. Rocking the boat more, water's coming in, things are getting out of control. Henry, I'm serious. Fine, fine. Here's the ice cream cone. (laughs) So so that's brinkmanship. And, And countries play nuclear brinkmanship all the time. None of them want a nuclear war, but they can raise the risk of nuclear war, make nuclear threats, deploy nuclear weapons, use conventional force to raise the risk of nuclear war, hoping that the other side backs down first. And I think we see elements of brinkmanship happening right now with Putin and Jake
1: Sullivan exchanging nuclear threats. Right, right. So, so how do – this is a, a sort of a local Russian question, but how do, you, how do you think about tactical nuclear weapons? If so You we talk about the tactical strategic distinction. How does your tactical nuclear weapons change how countries think about nuclear arms?
2: Yeah, yeah, and again, you know, many people who just learned about this in high school or college and haven't thought about it kind of assume a nuclear weapon goes off and the world ends. But you know, first point we we saw nuclear weapons used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and and they were devastating, but uh, those those cities were rebuilt pretty quickly thereafter but most of the rest of the world what wasn't affected. Uh, so you can see, you know, using a single nuclear weapon or using two nuclear weapons uh, doesn't mean the world ends. And so these non-strategic nuclear weapons were, are designed to have a, a limited battlefield effect. And so Russia has about 2000 of them and they have nuclear armed torpedoes to go after ships, nuclear armed depth charges to go after submarines, nuclear armed surface to air missiles, to nuke airplanes, nuclear armed missile defense interceptors, to nuke incoming missiles, nuclear mines, nuclear short range missiles,
0: What what is the point of a nuclear ground to air missile? You don't have to be as accurate. So just just, it's like it's like you fire it in the general direction of where you know the airplane is, and then okay, yeah, I see.
2: Or or if you know, there's a a sortie of several airplanes coming in instead of a separate missile to take down each airplane, you use one nuke and clear the skies. And yeah, so it's you know crazy to, to us in, in the West, maybe. But, you know, we did the same thing in the Cold War. We had a lot of battlefield nuclear weapons, and the Russians have a lot now. So, so they have a lot of options to choose from, 2,000 or so of these battlefield weapons. Um, and the yields, so Hiroshima was about 15 kilotons. It's been reported that Russia has sub-kiloton weapons. So that would be like one-fifteenth of Hiroshima. So it, if it was used on the White House, it would be enough to devastate you know, the surrounding area, but Georgetown would basically be fine. So Russia could use one of these weapons on a base, on tanks in, in the field, without creating a lot of collateral damage. Okay,
0: right. And, and, so, and so I guess the, the, you, you've said, okay, so, so their strategy would be to use these and then say, look, I mean, you're not going to blow up Moscow over one of these, right? Because would, that would be so disproportionate. They know that we're not going to do that. And so this is sort of the suicide or surrender dilemma. And one way of getting out of that is, right, we build up our own nuclear arsenal so that we can say, ah, but, you know, Mr. Putin, we now have these exact same kinds of weapons. So if you do a tactical nuke on a, you know, Ukrainian troop unit, we can do a tactical nuke on you guys, tit for tat. So suddenly the proportionality comes back into play that makes the deterrence effective that's the logic, right?
2: That's right. So the nuclear strategy is not too complicated at the end of the day. And so I don't know if you remember in 2018, Trump released his nuclear posture review and called for two new low yield nuclear weapons. And a lot of people were freaking out. Oh my God, Trump wants these small nukes so he can use them. But this was precisely the problem it was designed for, for Russia's battlefield nuclear weapons. Right. You know, essentially, the scenario envisioned at the time was: what if Russia invades Estonia? You know, we come to Estonia's defense. Russia pops off the nuke or two. We want to be able to say, okay, Putin, if that happens, you don't win. We have these low-yield nuclear weapons too. We'll use, you know, one or two or three, and you're just in a limited nuclear war with NATO. This isn't a path you want to go down. So we've essentially planned for that problem. What makes Ukraine so challenging is Ukraine is not a NATO ally. Uh, And Biden has already said, we're not going to get involved in this war. And so how do you then deter nuclear use? How do you respond? It's it's something I've been thinking about that the administration's thinking about, but it's not really a problem we foresaw a year ago. Is, is, Is Biden,
0: has he moved away from the push to develop tactical nukes or is he on the same page as Trump on that one?
2: Good question. So Trump called for two new low-yield nuclear weapons. One of them was an easy fix. We basically took some older high-yield weapons and gave them a smaller yield. And so those are already in the arsenal, and Biden's not messing with those. The second one, uh, this Slick'Em In, the new sea-launched cruise missile, uh, is a new missile, so it's going to take time to develop. So Biden's new nuclear posture review that was just released um, yesterday says we're killing that missile and they'd signaled actually they signaled that uh, with their defense budget back in february bipartisan majorities in so so basically every u.s commander testified that we need this weapon and killing it would be a bad idea so the the department of defense you know based publicly disagreed with the white house on this decision and bipartisan majorities in the defense budget restored funding uh, for this missile so essentially saying no biden you're wrong we're funding this missile, whether you need it or not. So to be determined how this is going to play but out. But so just, just to note an irony, I mean, everyone was
0: complaining that Trump was a Russian stooge, but Trump was actually willing to develop a missile that the entire defense community said we needed, And then Biden said, no, even though the defense department's kind of ignoring it. I mean, that's pretty, I, I do think that's pretty funny, like, like, and and I, I we'll we'll get into this a little later, but I do want to ask about sort of presidents and like how that, you know, Biden versus Trump plays into kind of the nuclear question with Putin because I think it's it's less straightforward than people may may think. But I just want to flag that
2: Let uh, me, yeah, when, when you know, um, you know, Trump's rhetoric on Russia and Putin was puzzling sometimes. But if you actually look at the defense policy, it was pretty tough on Russia, you know, including building a new nuclear weapon for Russia. Uh, yeah, no, it's Biden. Uh, cutting that weapon. Uh, you know, and I think the reason Biden's doing it is, is largely for ideological and political reasons. You have the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that are, you know, basically anti-nuclear, including America's nuclear yeah. weapons. And so I think he's trying to placate them.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, I'll let Charles get in here in a sec, but the one other question I had on this is, okay, so the logic is we'll have tactical nukes, so if he launches one, we can deter him. Great. And, and the idea is because he knows that we can deter him, he just won't launch one of them. All right. But like, what if Putin goes crazy or he has some different calculus and he decides, yeah, I know that they have enough tactical nukes to match us, but I'm still going to use three of them in Ukraine today. Then what do we do? Because that seems like the worry that, that they call our bluff.
2: Yeah, and and again, it's very different if it's a NATO ally versus Ukraine. So let's talk about Ukraine because that's where the action is currently. So why hasn't Putin used nuclear weapons yet? You know, he's been making the threats since February. I laid out the strategic and military reasons why it might make sense, but he hasn't done it. Why? You know, is it out of the goodness of his heart that he thinks it would be inappropriate? You know, I don't think so. He's (laughs) perfectly happy to invade neighbors and, and commit war crimes. So I think the reason is that he, is, he has been deterred. He is worried about what might happen. Could this lead to a major war with the United States or NATO? Could it lead to a, a U.S. nuclear attack? And, and so I think what we need to do is play on those fears and, and make him think that, yeah, maybe that, that will happen. And so just in the past few weeks, the administration's public statements on this have gotten a lot better. You know, a few weeks ago, John Kirby, the national security council spokesperson said something like, oh, if Putin uses nuclear weapons, it's going to be really bad for Russia, the radioactivity might blow back into Russia. <laughs> and I thought, no, that, that's really? not going to deter Putin. Yeah, He doesn't care if some people on the border get radiation poisoning. But then I, about three weeks ago, Jake Sullivan on the Sunday show said, there'll be catastrophic consequences for Russia. America will respond decisively. He didn't spell out what that meant, but I, I thought that was good. You know, what, what, make Putin think, what, what did he mean? Does he mean the United States is going to join the war on Ukraine's side? Is the United States going to retaliate directly against us? So I think that's the, the first step is, is to deter Putin uh, and plan B is to make plan A work. Mm-hmm. But then if he does use nuclear weapons, that, uh, that does create a problem. And, and I have some thoughts on what we should do then as well. But uh, again, what, plan A is to deter him. What, what, what in brief? Should we do that? Yeah. And I did write a, a piece called a memo to the president that we published through the Atlantic Council that's been getting a lot of attention. And yeah, but, but in there I, I lay out essentially three options, you know, one would be kind of do more of what we're doing now. Some more sanctions, some more arms to the Ukrainians. I think the downside of that is Putin will essentially think I got away with it. You know, I use nuclear weapons right. and, and sanctions, let's use two or six or 10. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what do our allies think? You know, geez, uh, can we really rely on American nuclear weapons? It seems like this is just a bluff. What does Kim Jong-un think? You know, he might think, oh, we can use nuclear weapons now. This is this is fair game. So I think that's not a good option. You know, another option might be to retaliate with with our own low-yield nuclear weapons. You know, the challenge there is Ukraine's not an ally. Biden has already said we're not getting involved in, in the war. And so it's just very difficult for me to imagine... Biden you know, coming in from out of nowhere and nuke, using nukes. So what I recommend in the piece, which I think might be the, the sweet spot, is a direct conventional U.S. strike, limited strike on Russian forces. So maybe sinking Russian ships in the Black Sea. If we could identify the unit that launched the attack, maybe retaliating directly against that unit, because I think that would be seen by Putin as a serious consequence. He doesn't want a major war with NATO. But I think if we do it in a limited way, he's also going to realize, okay, they're not, you know, this isn't a full-scale war. Maybe I just don't use nuclear weapons again and and I can avoid this.
1: Let me ask just to to say something you said about, we talked a little bit about irrationality, rationality. It seems to me like basically the North Korean model for governance is to act like maybe you might nuke South Korea or Japan and then like you might be crazy enough to do it so that the rest of the international community will bribe you with enough food so that your people don't rebel. And so like all of that that strategy basically depends on the Kim family appearing to be insane and doing irrational, radical things all the time. How do you think about that sort of rational irrationality when there's sort of a, you know, the 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 related question is I think there's a characterization of Donald Trump's foreign policy which looks very similar. That he spent a lot of yeah. time going, "I could be crazy enough to do it," I'm like that was actually pretty successful. So, so how do you think about that kind of that kind of posture?
2: Yeah, yeah. So you're exactly right. And I mentioned Thomas Schelling earlier, this brilliant Harvard economist, and and so this is one of the ways he saw also to get around mutually assured destruction. You know, maybe a sane leader wouldn't launch a nuclear attack, but what if you're crazy, or or what if your enemies think that you're crazy? So we have had leaders over the years intentionally try to cultivate a perception of craziness. You know, Khrushchev took off his shoe at a UN General Assembly meeting and pounded the lectern, said, we will bury you. Nixon had his madman strategy where he put nuclear weapons on alert for no real reason during the Vietnam War. This is the Kim family strategy. They're uh, not crazy. They, They want the world to think they're crazy, though, for this reason. And I'm not sure it was an intentional strategy on Trump's part, but it did have that effect. I think our enemies, you know, were worried. Who knows what what he'll do? Maybe, maybe he would launch a nuclear war. So so that is actually an advantage when it comes to deterrence. Now, as we also saw, there are other downsides. You know, if the American people think you might be crazy or your allies think you might be crazy, that's not great. But I, I think there is an upside when it comes to deterring your enemies. Maybe, maybe Biden needs to lean in more to the... The
0: perceptibility, yeah, like, like, uh, <laughs> oh, like, yeah, you know, if Putin nukes, I assure you, college loan forgiveness and also a nuclear strike on on Moscow. <laughs> anyway, student loan forgiveness. Oh, what? I, 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 I was just. Fidelity or (laughs) was it like,
2: (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, and, and Biden's he's made, he he's gone too far in the other direction. He signaled his fear of, of war with Russia, of escalation from the very beginning, you know, saying before the war even began that the U S military option is, is off the table. Yeah. Maybe that was the right policy, but you don't want to tell Putin that, right. You want Putin to worry about it. And then, you know, this, videotape with donors a couple of weeks ago where he's saying this could lead to Armageddon. You know, are there off ramps for Putin? He was basically telegraphing his fear for the world to see. And again, it's understandable he would be afraid. But, you know, that's not something you want to be showing to right, right now.
0: Well, isn't, isn't the challenge here, though, that you may not want to show it to Putin, but in a democracy where the public is supposed to have at least some indirect kind of input over existential decisions affecting the public. Like you'd, you'd want the public to know what the president's philosophies were, right? And for people to be able to say, well, like, do we think it's worth the risk, et cetera? Like, like, so there's a kind of democratic case for being transparent about these risks. It seems like the the problem is that in the case of nuclear deterrence, that kind of democratic transparency will undermine the strategy. So you might almost have to, in order to signal to Putin, "Hey, I might be crazy enough to do it." you might have to signal to voters too. I might be crazy enough to get us into a nuclear war, which like a rational voter might say, mm, "I'm going to vote for the other guy. you know so like, it feels like there's there's sort of like no it's like it's like a it's like a two pronged game theory problem where to send the signal the optimal signal to your adversary, you might have to send a signal to people at home that will make it more likely for you to be removed from office and therefore less likely to be able to send the optimal signal to the adversary. Like this seems like a, a kind of under theorized problem with, with this whole debate.
2: Yeah, well, I, I see it as a, a, an issue that often you deal with in national security in a democracy. You know, on one hand, you want to be transparent that people get a say, yeah. you know, on the other hand, that there is stuff that's, you know, classified for good reason. You know, we don't publicize our war plans. Uh, we don't, you know, publicize what is the depths to which our nuclear submarines can go, you know, we want to keep that secret. So I guess I see this, similarly, cause I think there is a lot of transparency on nuclear strategy for people who want to pay attention. You know, the, we, every administration publishes a nuclear posture review. You know, Congress has executive branch officials testify. Uh, and there has been a, a lot of bipartisan consensus on us nuclear strategy for the past several decades. So, so I think there is transparency at that level. But then when it comes to, you know, a, a specific crisis, trying to deter a dangerous adversary from using um, nuclear weapons, then, then I think that's the moment where you don't want to be completely transparent and ask, ask the voters to weigh in. I think that is you know, w- one of these areas where you do want the executive branch to, you know, and the commander-in-chief to be able to do what's in the best interest of the country.
0: Right. So So we've been talking about kind of, strategic irrationality almost there's kind of an opposite the opposite solution of almost hyper rationality where you say have a i mean this is sort of a sci-fi thing but there's also kind of real world examples you you basically have a computer program that you know basically just says like we're automating our nuclear procedures and if there is X strike on the United States, there will automatically be a strike on the guy who nuked us. So you you remove the element of human agency and make it pure kind of computer-mediated rationality precisely to make the the Turin more credible. You know, it's like, yeah, if we nuke them, it will be out of their hands, even if they decided, oh, wait, we 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 don't know if we really want to destroy you guys. Like we're we're nice, compassionate people. Nope, like the, the computer. The computer is going to kill you. I mean, and this is, this is like the premise of Dr. Strangelove and my understanding is that there's a kind of real world example of this in the dead hand Soviet era system, which said in the event of a, I think like decapatory nuclear strike on Moscow, it would automatically launch weapons at the U S how do you think about those kinds of automatic kind of binding procedures that countries have set up to make the deterrent more
2: credible? Yeah, and I was going to mention the Doomsday Machine and Dr. Strangelove because that, you're right, that was the idea. And you know, the, the, the great line that, you know, it's it, it only deters if the enemy knows about it, but they kept it secret because they wanted to surprise the premier at his birthday party. So, <laughs> you know, we stumbled into an accidental nuclear war. But yeah, so the, the, the big problem with nuclear deterrence is credibility. You know, you could, it's easy to say you'd, you'd fight a nuclear war over something. If your enemy believes that, then you can get what you want because your enemy doesn't want a nuclear war but are you really willing to do it is is it just a bluff and and so countries have gone to extraordinary lengths to try to make these threats credible you know the united states forward deploys forces on the territory of its allies we forwarded deployed tactical nuclear weapons in europe you know we make these statements um, but but one way to yeah you know, to make it credible would would be to just make it automatic uh, and so you're right the dead hand system in the Soviet Union during the cold war, that was the idea if the leadership is, you know, taken out that there is a system in place that could retaliate, you know, re- really hard to imagine that happening in, in a democracy like the United States, I think for good reason. I think you do want mm-hmm. uh, political judgment it, and the scenarios can be so different. You know, so, you know, if you were going to set up the machine, you know, for example, if, if we set it up six months ago, we wouldn't have, or a year ago, we wouldn't have had the Ukraine scenario built in. You know, it was something we didn't even really imagine. Russia uses, nukes Ukraine, what, what do we do? So I do think that having options and having
1: humans kind of weigh those mm-hmm. options does does make sense. Let me ask what sort of the other side of the ledger. One, you know, one, one sort of come refrain from a certain subset is the only real solution to the problem is multilateral disarmament. That everyone just has to go for their nukes. We got to put, you know, we got to close Pandora's box. My general instinct is that that's not going to happen. But can you talk about disarmament, its viability, how much we should think about it as a strategy? As for the Monero case of, like, what's the value of assault treaties, student arms limitation treaties?
2: Yeah, so I'll take arms control and disarmament separately. So So I think there has been basically a bipartisan... Consensus might be too strong, but coalition around strategic forces policy since, uh, at least since the 1983 Scowcroft Commission report, and I am the director of the Scowcroft Center, so proud of Scowcroft's legacy on this, but essentially it's strong deterrence and strong arms control. So we say, you know, we're going to have strong nuclear forces to protect ourselves and our allies, but we're also going to talk to our enemies, try to get them to agree to limit their nuclear weapons in a way that might be helpful to us. And if you do both of those things, you can get the support of kind of the national security, you know, defense types, and the people who are more in the arms control disarmament crowd. And, and so I do think it makes sense to continue to try to push on both, even though the arms control thing has gotten harder. When it comes to complete nuclear disarmament, uh, I, I agree with you, I'm, be- I'm very skeptical. I mean, you know, because the enemy gets a vote, as they say, you know, so even if the United States got rid of all of its nuclear weapons tomorrow, what does, you know, can you convince Putin to give up his nuclear weapons? Can you convince Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear weapons? The answer is obviously no. They, they see these nuclear weapons as, you know, key to their survival. So when, you know, disarmament folks are you know, asking me, why doesn't the United States do more? Or, or you know, giving Washington of our time. I say, go, go talk to Beijing and Moscow and, you know, Pyongyang. Once they're willing to give up their nuclear weapons, then maybe there's something to talk about. But yeah, you know, countries see these weapons as key to their survival. So they're very reluctant, understandably, to give them up. Right. One other question, we sort of alluded to this with the
0: suicide or surrender point, but, and this is obviously a hypothetical that, you know, we're not really dealing with in the immediate future, but let's say that in things escalate, stuff gets out of control and somehow, some way. Putin decides, you know what? I'm going to nuke the eastern seaboard. He's not going to nuke the whole country. You know, he's like, California can survive. Midwest, like, you know, we don't need to kill all those people. But yeah, DC, New York, those have to go. And he does it. And let's say the president gets out of there in time, you know, he's relocated to some compound underground in Montana. I don't know. But suddenly, like, we've just lost, like, you know, millions and millions of people in, like, the most devastating nuclear attack ever. Okay. In that case, like you're the president and you're in the underground bunker. How do you think about the choices there? Because, uh, you know, if to respond to that, right. With actual strategic nuclear weapons. I mean, you are talking about I mean, killing again, yourself, millions and millions of people. And you might think, you know, we've already lost DC and New York. Like that won't bring those people back on the other hand. Shit, what if we also lose California if we don't go and, like, blow up Moscow? I mean, how do you, how do you weigh that? Because that obviously unlikely that we're going to see any decision like that have to be made. But in theory, you know, it could happen.
2: Yeah, a few points. And, you know, there's a classic Cold War book on nuclear deterrence called Thinking the Unthinkable. And you can see where that strategy comes or that name comes from, because w- once you start really getting into nuclear strategy, you do have to thank the unthinkable. In fact, a mega death, you know, n- not just the name of a band, that was a nuclear strategy term from the Cold War, which is a million deaths. Um, so you know you know okay, yeah, that's a sixty mega mega death event, the sub fifty mega death event. So, so first thing you'd want to deter it, you know. Ideally, you you know, make it clear to Putin that if he were to do something like that, the cost would be so devastating for Russia that that's not something he, he'd ever want to do. And so, ideally, you deter it. If it actually happens, then you are in a in a real dilemma. I mean, so you know, if you say, okay, well, if I retaliate, he's just going to retaliate more. Let's back down now. That might seem attractive, but then essentially you've just signaled to the world that. You know, you, you, the United States is willing to absorb nuclear attacks and then sue for peace. You know, why why would Putin stop? Why would, you know, I think China, Iran, North Korea would run wild. And so that's, on on the other hand, I think you, well, one thing, you know, so the U.S., an important point, because mutually assured destruction, we often assume that, you know, essentially we're threatening to kill a bunch of people in Moscow and Beijing. They're threatening to kill a bunch of people in New York and L.A., but actually the United States has never had that kind of strategy. We've always had a so-called counterforce targeting strategy. So instead of intentionally killing large numbers of innocent civilians, our strategy is to hold at risk enemy leadership, enemy military forces, their ability to command and control those forces, war supporting industries. Mm-hmm. And so we could retaliate with nuclear weapons in a way that would you know, maybe destroy things very important to Putin without killing a lot of people. And so essentially that that's the kind of path that I would, I would recommend.
1: We're going to want to, we're going to move to its closing thoughts in just a minute. But before we do that, I guess I, you know, I, I tend to think when I think of this issue, which I try not to too much, when I think of this issue, I think about in terms of sort of personal nuclear risk. Like I live, everybody here lives within a potentially large nuclear blast vicinity of DC. Somebody wants to nuke the Pentagon or the White House, or whatever, that would be an issue for several of us or probably plausibly all of us. Do you think particularly about personal nuclear risk? What is your approach there, if any? Do you try to focus on the big picture instead? (laughs) Good good question. And, you know, Paul Nietzsche was a leading defense official during the
2: Cold War, uh, and and he apparently had a house in the country with a a fallout shelter. For that reason, he worried about uh, the risk. It is something I've thought about. You know, I have young kids, so we moved from the city out into the suburbs about a year ago. And I did think about it, I did think, you know, do I want to be out in Great Falls or somewhere where, I'm, you know, kind of further away, I ended up pretty close to the city for convenience to, to get into the city. So unfortunately I think I would be within the blast radius of likely Russian targets. So I guess I made a choice where I agreed to accept that risk for myself and my family, but it, it is something that I at least, at least thought about. Yeah. So sort of the last maybe question.
0: <laughs> in terms of your personal nuclear risk of course there there's one big thing we haven't talked about, which is everyone might rationally decide, yeah, you know we we it it doesn't make sense to launch a nuke, that would just be World War three game over, okay, fine. what happens if there's a malfunction and the system says that the nukes are coming towards us, even though they're not really i mean that has happened and there's this famous case in Petrov in Russia, who basically just sort of partly based on kind of gut, you know, reasoning and and the facts of the case, but also based on gut intuition, just said, yeah, I don't think the alarm system is working and decided to not report, you know, this alleged nuclear missile launch, thus potentially saving the entire world. I mean, how likely are those misfires and, and, you know, like, what do you see as the chance that like a misfire like that or, or you know, just a, a false alarm could lead to nuclear Armageddon? Because that's the uh, that's the thing I really worry about in some ways, more than Putin going crazy.
2: Yeah, there is the risk of accident. And there were some close calls during the Cold War. I, I think it's less of a danger. For the United States, we, we have multiple different ways of detecting nuclear launch. And so, you know, that gives us some redundancy. We're not relying on just one indicator. And then two, you know, we've built in permissive action links and other things that m- make it hard to use the nuclear weapons unless you're really trying to use them. Some nuclear strategists talk about the always never problem. You know, you always want your nuclear weapons to work when you want them to work. You know, you don't want it to be a dud. But you never want it to go off when, when you don't want it to go off, you don't, you don't want an accident. The United States has pretty much solved that, to my satisfaction. But what about other newer nuclear powers, the North Koreas, you know, even some of Russia's battlefield nuclear weapons, I, I'm not so sure. But, but a point on the Russian battlefield nuclear weapons, we don't believe that they're deployed to the forces currently. So it's not like a, a low-level commander could just decide to use them, you know, tomorrow. They are kept in central storage areas, and so Putin would have to give the order to push them out into the field. so once they're out into the field, a lower level commander could use them but as as
1: far as we can tell he hasn't hasn't done that yet. okay, maybe we have some closing thoughts Aaron what's your are you, are you are you less worried at nukes now? Are you more worried at nukes where are you at having having heard from Matt I was sort of already leaning in this direction before
0: the podcast, but i i I think that, in the world we live in today, probably the best way to minimize the threat of nuclear war is for us to have more of these tactical nukes and and be able to more credibly threaten other countries. So I'm basically on board with what Trump tried to do, and it sounds like the Defense Department agreed to do, but Biden didn't want to do that you know it seems like Trump was right on that one. I guess my only other thought would be in the world we live in today, more nukes probably is an improvement. But the very fact that that's the case, I think, says something really horrifying about the human condition in the nuclear age, right? Where where once this technology exists, we're almost morally required to just keep doubling down on it and kind of further entrenching the, ri- the the possibility of global annihilation. There seems to be something very morally kind of repulsive about that, which just reaffirms my commitment that if one were going to go back in time to kill baby so-and-so, everyone says, oh, you know, you go back to kill baby Hitler. I don't know. Maybe you kill baby Einstein or maybe you kill me. Ba- like, 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 if you could have avoided the these jokes
1: ever what yeah i guess you don't really need that the nukes were gonna happen like we got there first and that was good you can't kill oppenheimer because if we kill oppenheimer then the nazis get the nukes first and that's really maybe bad. Maybe, maybe if
0: we like killed like all the people who discovered atomic science
1: yeah it doesn't matter it was it was that it's, it's just not that complicated uh, like,
0: i don't know charles point, i think this is you, you i, think, just, I think you're too uh, much of i think uh, you're too much of a wig i i think i think scientific progress is more contingent sure. we might have I been able to able avoid that.
1: I I I think the the parting sort of Einstein is that general relativity was was a massive insight. Special relativity was something somebody was going to get eventually. You know, look, you go you go and look at and here here I'll get to my point. You go you go and you look at the early Manhattan. A fun fact for our listeners: I spent a summer in college working. Now I work at the Manhattan Institute. Then I worked. For the, for the Atomic Heritage Foundation, which is unrelated to the Heritage Foundation. They document the history of the Manhattan Project. You go look what they were doing the Manhattan Project. The first self-sustaining man-made nuclear reaction was like some nuclear material and a big stack of graphite in like a, I think, I think it's a tennis court, I forget, underneath the stadium at the University you know, of Chicago. They just like piled some stuff up and sort of crossed their fingers. And like, that's what nuclear science was. It wasn't fun. You know, the, the math was fairly hard. But like somebody was going to get there. We only got there ahead of the Nazis because they had some wrong ideas about what was involved in, I think, production of uranium. I don't forget the I forget the details. The Russians got there 16 seconds later, partially because you know they had spies, but they were going to get there. Look, and this is my point in response to you. Uh, I think you just have to accept as given that we have nuclear weapons now. Yeah. it's not going to go away. And so no, I'm not I'm not talking about that at all. I think there is evil in the world. That's just the way it is. And so, and so, you know, I think I remain as sanguine, given what our guest just said, I remain as sanguine as I was at the start of the podcast, which is to say I think fairly powerful logic uh does determine a lot of the behavior in this space, which doesn't mean I think the risk of nuclear weapons is zero, but rather that and I think our guest has said this very well, you know, there's there's a whole space between no nukes and total thermonuclear global annihilation. And once you accept that, you can sort of live more comfortably with the nuclear weapons jet. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the only thing I'd say in response to that is, if you take it for
0: granted that just there was kind of this almost in, innate teleology, once once modern science got off the ground, people were going to discover nuclear weapons. I mean, another way to look at that would be to say that, like, the possibility of mankind destroying itself is just in, intrinsic to the very logic of modern scientific discovery. Yeah. and I think that that should, I think that that should color our kind of hagiographic narrative of scientific progress and because once you once you see it as wow this like cool science this cool process that we came up with during the enlightenment you know always like contained within it the seeds of mankind's destruction i don't know like to me that should make one less of a kind of you know normie pro-science wig not more of one but maybe I, i i you're the you're the you're let's, the let's, scientist. Let's let's let's, let's I'm a scientist. yeah,
1: I'm a, I'm a scientist, scientist whatever. Um, anyway, let's 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 do some recommendations. Aaron, do you recommend? <laughs> yeah, Our listeners, just one. Yeah, there's a TV
0: show that I used to really love called 24, real time sort of anti-terrorism show. I thought of it today because it involves a lot of the seasons involve nuclear threat and. Kiefer Sutherland, who, who played this character, Jack Bauer, you know, always rushing to, to stop the nuke before it goes off. It's a good, it's a good TV show, very addictive. There are eight seasons of it, nine, actually. If you have never watched it, you should go and watch it. It will keep you busy for several weeks of very entertaining television
1: binging. Anyway, Charles, what's your recommendation? Sure. My recommendation, I was thinking about post-apocalyptic media. And the most recent one I read, like in, in mid 2020 when everyone was reading this, is Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven, which envisions not a nuclear apocalypse, but a a a pandemic apocalypse and the fallout of the Society after that. It was very good. I probably read it at the wrong time. It's probably not not the right time to read that book, but it was quite good at the time. To be clear, I worry about that too. I know. And and and, and what about the AI? Matt, you listened to us ramble long enough. Do you have a recommendation for our listeners today? Three quick ones. One, if you haven't seen
2: Dr. Strangelove, you should. This classic dark comedy from the Cold War about an accidental nuclear war. Second, I have to recommend, recommend my own book, 2018, The Logic of American Nuclear Strategy. A required read uh, on the Air Force Chief's reading list. So required reading for Air Force officers. And then finally, Thomas Schelling's book, Arms and Influence. He, he won the Nobel Prize in economics and Uh, He's a good writer too. He Uses you know examples of deterring his kids and stuff to to make it understandable. So those are my my three.
1: Well, thank you, Matt, for joining us today,
2: Institutionalized. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, and good luck with future episodes. Look forward to coming back at some point,
1: (laughs) (laughs) assuming we don't all die in nuclear holocaust first. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you as always to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, tactical nuclear strikes you'd like to direct towards us, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sebarium. I think that's about all the time we have. So until next time, I'm Charles F. Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon.